This week's episode of Discovering Trek is brought to you exclusively by Fansets. Keep listening for this week's special discount offer code exclusively for Discovering Trek listeners. Discover a whole new universe of pin collectibles with Fansets online at fansets.com. A huge battle, a sacrifice, and a journey to the unknown. Episode 14 of Star Trek Discovery wrapped up Season 2 doing exactly what the writers have been telling us all along. They answered questions, clarified fan concerns, and gave us a battle of epic proportions. But did they generate even bigger questions and concerns about our beloved ship and crew with this season finale? Well, let's find out. Welcome aboard, everyone. My name is Dan Davidson, and we are Discovering Trek. Welcome, one and all, to Discovering Trek, the Star Trek Discovery Companion, presented by Fansets. Cameras were shaking, crew members were bouncing left and right, and damage control teams were working on overtime this week as the highly anticipated final battle against control took place between Leland Bot 3000, Discovery, and Enterprise. As the crew frantically worked on getting Michael's Red Angel suit working, Saru and Pike tried to keep the Voldemort of the Star Trek universe at bay in hopes of sending Michael and Discovery into the future and save all life in the galaxy. As always, this is the premiere podcast for the most in-depth discussion and analysis about the latest episode of Star Trek Discovery, entitled Such Sweet Sorrow, Part 2. As the season wrapped up, we knew there would be a lot heading into this episode, but I don't think we realized just how much we would see. From tender moments from Spock and Burnham, as well as Stamets and Culber, to tense-filled moments of imminent death and destruction, Yes, I'm talking to you, Enterprise and Admiral Cornwell. This one had it all and gave us a finale that I was definitely not expecting. And there is just so much to talk about and so many questions as to what expect next, what to expect next season that I need to bring in my trusted podcast partner to help me keep me on point. If he and I were dealing with an undetonated photon torpedo and only one of us could escape with our life, I know that he would smile, put his hand on my shoulder, and say goodbye before hightailing it out of there, leaving a dust trail like the Tasmanian Devil in a Bugs Bunny cartoon. He is my very special friend, my brother in Trek, and my amazing number one. He is Bill Smith. Bill, uh, I'm not going to lie. I still don't know if I fully digested this season finale, and I don't know if I ever will. How you doing, buddy? Good, buddy. Thanks for the introduction. Uh, it sounds like you need some Rolaids. <laughs> um, possibly, a little bit. but yeah. uh, I, I only want to contend with one thing in your introduction. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't do it like the Tasmanian Devil, I'd be more like the Terminator and go, Hasta la vista, baby, and wow. then I'd be out of there. So, we're I mean, you're 99% there. I like that. We're already throwing in impersonations of Arnold Schwarzenegger, and we're only like two minutes into the show. That's fantastic. <laughs> Got to get to the shuttle. <laughs> ah, la, la. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. Well, yeah, episode 14, man. It was big. It was full of action and drama and tense and, and sadness and all that good stuff. And, and uh, you know, we felt that we had to bring in somebody special this week to, uh, to talk about the season finale. So who do we have here, bud? Oh, wait. This person is the special person? <laughs> no, sure. I kid. Sure, I kid. why not? This week's very special guest is joining us for the first time here on Discovering Trek. 
A fan of Trek for as long as he can remember, his favorite series has always been Star Trek Voyager, which is pretty fantastic. Uh, as he studies to be a veterinarian at the world-renowned Royal Veterinary College in London, he is back home in New Hampshire for a few weeks and has been looking forward to being a guest here on the show. And just to show that nepotism is alive and well here on Discovering Trek, he just happens to be Dan's nephew. He is Maddie Clarkson. Maddie, welcome to the show, and I'm really sorry that you have a family member like Dan. Uh, it's bad enough that he's my friend. I can only imagine having to like him because he's family. It's okay. He paid $500,000 to get me on this show. So. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, you know you know that uh, college charge? The whole oh, thing? yeah. Mm. yeah. Runs yeah. real deep. And uh, and once you're once you're done with college, you can just Brexit right out of there. Yeah, uh, you know, I I uh, I imagine that just like England, uh, I might take a while to make that decision. <laughs> <laughs> nice, very nice. See, Maddie, this is why we wanted to have you on the show, man. You and I have had several discussions about discovery and other things all through the years, and uh, you bring a unique uh, opinion and uh, view to things. So we're really glad you're here. I think we're going to have fun. I really do. Oh, good. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, before we get started in the discussion of what happened in this finale, Maddie and Bill, we've got a lot to talk about, obviously. So, Bill, how can folks get in touch with us for their thoughts on Such Sweet Sorrow Part 2? Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on Secured Channel. Well, Dan, on Twitter, you can find us at Discovering Trek and on my face, play space book you can find us at facebook.com slash discovering trek in either place you can become part of the discussion share your thoughts questions comments concerns and tell us what you thought about the season two finale of star trek discovery plus you can also send us a voicemail by going to our website at trekgeeks.com and clicking on the giant blue button there on the right hand side please do remember though that any comments you leave us could be used in a future episode of discovering trek dan thank you bill matt can i use an english accent at all during this uh, broadcast uh, that is um, uh, 100% up to you. Uh, I, I don't know. The can you? Who are currently listening to this, I take uh, no joy in, um, in the right, well, that might happen. I'll decide later, I guess. Can you? I, I think it's may you, and the answer is no. All right. Black alert. Black alert. From here on in, this episode of Discovering Trek contains spoilers. So if you haven't watched the season finale of Star Trek Discovery Season 2, stop listening right now. Head on over to CBS All Access or wherever you watch Discovery. Watch the latest episode, then head back on over to Discovering Trek. Failure to do that puts you at risk to find out plot developments and character details for Such Sweet Sorrow Part 2. <laughs> Trainees, to the briefing room. Guys, as we enter the briefing room to start our discussion on the uh, finale of Season 2 of Discovery, let's first get some high-level thoughts. Was it a thumbs up? Was it a thumbs down? And why? And Maddie, as our unbelievable guest of honor this week, we're going to start with you. And just to let you know, once we're done recording, all this really good high-talk view is stopping. Um, I think I'm going to change things up on your show, uh, appearing as a first-time guest. I think I'm going to give two different ratings. I'm going to give a rating for the episode as a whole and the season as a whole. Oh, okay. Um, Nice. I think I'm going to give this episode uh, a thumbs down. I think I'm going to give it a thumbs down. I think it was there was just too many plot holes. Um, I think there was too much of a trying to appease the fans 
um, with the ending and how they sort of wrap up uh, why Discovery wasn't ever, you know, mentioned in in previous but also future time travels fun um, uh, <laughs> series. Um, the season as a whole, I will a hundred percent give a thumbs up. It was an excellent, excellent. Um, out of television that um honestly i have tried to introduce to most of my friends uh, who refuse me but it's still great um so i was very very happy with the season as a whole yeah i gotta agree with both of your points uh i i can't really believe i'm doing this because i loved the majority of the episode but i too have to give the finale a thumbs down and that's the first one of this entire season that i'm giving a thumbs down to and i'm gonna give that a thumbs down at least for now and what i mean by that is You know, I remember the cliffhanger of Best of Both Worlds and Star Trek The Next Generation, and I couldn't wait to see what happened in the next season's premiere. But for me and the finale this year, I'm afraid and I'm hesitant for the start of season three because of how it ended. The idea of the crew being stranded in the future and the entire crew and ship purposely being redacted out of all of Starfleet history really bothers me. And we'll get into the whys later on. Um, Maybe that'll change when we start season three and have it all explained. But for right now, uh, I got to be honest, guys, I'm really kind of hollow and it, it, it forces me to give a thumbs down to the episode. But as with you, Matt, huge thumbs up for the entire season. Bill, what about you? Well, you know, Danny and I have talked offline a lot this week about this episode, and I'm going to say that I've softened on it the tiniest bit, but I'm still going to give this episode a thumbs down overall. Um, I am okay with the jump to the future. I am okay with the redaction from history. I am not okay with the starship-sized plot holes that were created in order to get this starship from 2256 to 950 years in the future. Um, I, I know we're going to talk about those a lot today, but those are just really things that, that that I have a hard time forgiving in the scope of a fantastic season that I truly loved. Yeah. Wow. Three thumbs down. Is that the first time that's ever happened on Discovering Trek, Bill? It is, actually. Wow. That's really something. And, and it really is too bad. And it, it makes me kind of sad. But I know that we're going to get into the reasons why as we discuss all the major discussion points of the episode which we'll start right now and let's of course start with the first scene that we see and pretty much see throughout the entire episode and that's the battle with section 31 i don't think we've ever seen a battle of this scope uh on in star trek and that's including some of the dominion war battles that we saw in deep space nine there was a lot going on here and Bill, you and I have had this discussion. Was there too much going on during this battle? Was it too busy, especially in the beginning, uh, five, ten minutes of the episode, where cameras were going in every which direction, split screens were being used, and stuff like that? What did you think there? I I, I have to agree with that. I I do think at first it was a little busy. I'm going to say this battle is visually just beautiful. Um, Hats off to the the visual effects team and sound design for making this a believable – um, very tense battle. I thought that it was just, it was, I would have loved to have seen it on a giant screen, like in a movie theater. That's how gorgeous it was. However, um, this was a two part finale and it seems like we jammed all of the, um, the filler stuff into part one and all of the action battle stuff into part two. And I think it made the first 10, 15 minutes of part two really hard and, and difficult to stay focused on. Um, with some of those shots, with some of those decisions in the battle. Um, I think if they had spread it out a little bit over the two parts, I think it might have been easier to digest. But I don't want to take away from how fantastic the sequence was. Um, It just it was hard to keep straight. 
I got to agree. All ever since Discovery started with the very first scene uh, with Takuma's eye in the galaxy, the special effects have been amazing. In Who? this Takuma. Thank you. Sorry. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> it's really been great. And and Maddie, you came over and and watched the episode at my house with Sue and I, and we really didn't talk a lot during the episode because we knew that we were going to have you on the show and we wanted to keep uh, ideas and, and opinions kind of quiet. But what did you think about those opening battle scenes? Um, the one thing that I definitely uh, can appreciate is they did try and break – they try and broke it up in terms of uh, what was going on into sections and i can appreciate that if you're going to have a battle sort of continue over an hour-long episode um i think another point that i enjoyed about it was um uh leland's sort of count again moment um i thought that was brilliantly done because you know you sort of expect Giorgio to have the last word um most of the time when she was like oh we have you know 200 ships and you have about 30 uh, and I absolutely loved the fact that, you know, it turned into it, it, that was something that was unexpected. You expected sort of two major starships versus 30. And then it turned into two uh, major starships and 200, you know, Tron bikes or whatever you want to call those. <laughs> um, and then all of a sudden you have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of weird drone things that we never would have expected. Um, and it was it was really something interesting to see the the sort of. Um, almost fish-like um, nature of those drones and how they moved. I absolutely love the cinematography of that, you know, giving you sardine realness from Finding Nemo. Um, it was great. I really did enjoy that. Um, I do think they could have spaced it out a little bit more. I think an entire battle scene like that, having multiple sections when you have, um, uh, uh, oh, the spoiler alerts already happened, the Klingons and the, and the, um, the Kelpians arriving just sort of at the end, it was very, seemed very sudden, um, could have gone a little bit, you know, more in depth with that could have been a, a battle that draw definitely, um, was drawn out over two episodes. Um, but I was, I was definitely happy with it. And the cinematography of it all was just absolutely fantastic. Let me ask you this guys. And, and Bill, actually I'll, I'll just go with Bill. I don't, Matt just talks a lot. Um, no, just kidding, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> when, when Leland said count again and all of those drone ships appeared, I instantly thought of the swarm from Star Trek beyond. Did that run come into your mind at all? Yeah, it did. It was a little swarm like, um, but, but I thought that it was choreographed visually in a way that, 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 that kept me from thinking, oh, this is just the swarm all over again. Um, I, I at least appreciated how it was done. It was a definite oblique moment, as you like mm-hmm. to refer to it. Yes. You know, we think it's going to be a somewhat evenly matched fight, you know, um, and then we get into it. And it's like, oh, man, we're yeah, not ready was, for that. Nope, not at all. So so we have these control bots, I guess you could say, coming from control. But I got to say, the one thing and in, in everything that happened in this and this happened towards the end of the episode. I got to say, I kind of was like, you got to be effing kidding me when those damage control robots came out of the hull of the Enterprise and started <laughs> scurrying around like BB-8. I, I got to say, that was one of the big downers for me for this episode. Matt, what did you think about those wonderful little droids? I think they definitely could have picked a less Star Wars-esque sort of um, <laughs> way to, uh, you know, automated fixing of a starship. I definitely think they, I mean, probably not nanotechnology, but they they could have used some lasers like they were using in uh, developing the suit for Burnham. They could, it could have been a lot more sort of scientific than some Baymaxes uh, from Big Hero 6. 
Uh, la, la, la. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I mean, as a fan, I guess I can, I can appreciate sort of the, the, uh, they tried. They tried. <laughs> Bill, Bill, you were rolling your eyes when I brought that up. So I don't think you liked them either. I, I know. I've heard more about Big Hero 6 this week than I've ever wanted to because of your uncle, Maddie. <laughs> He's driving me crazy. Um, it's funny. You, you bring up Big Hero 6. I was thinking of Rosie the Robot Maid from the Jetsons. Um, oh, <laughs> you know, I just I thought it was the dumbest thing that's ever been introduced in Star Trek. And this just strikes me as a total Kurtzman moment. It really does. We've never heard of the dot sevens before now. I don't even know what dot seven stands for ah. um, and, and how they're supposed to repair stuff as stuff is going on. Um, they look uh, it truly was stupid. And I hate using that word in conjunction with Star Trek, but uh, it, it was a waste of time. It really was. So we have the Jetsons reference. We have Big Hero 6. I actually thought of the little custodial robot in Wally on the big ship that goes around Aww. cleaning up all the street marks. Um, so, yeah, it, it was it was definitely an, a uh, not a shining moment, I don't think, in this episode. But one thing that was shining, and we've had a lot of people talking over the course of the season about the fact that phasers in Discovery don't use the beams, and they're kind of like the, the burst of energy uh, weapons. But we saw a lot of familiar blue streak phaser beams in this episode, Bill. And I think you and I really appreciated seeing uh, that familiarity when it came to this battle. Well, you know, just because the discovery and other ships hasn't had the blue beams doesn't mean that a particular Mm -hmm. class of starship doesn't have them. And now we know the constitution class absolutely has the blue beams and rightfully so it makes sense. I mean, as, as technology is upgraded, as, uh, as new ships are introduced, there's going to be changes into weaponry. I mean, we see that today in our own Navy to some extent, right? Or in the navies of the world. So, uh, yeah, no, those blue beams were beautiful. It brought a smile to my face. I loved seeing it, and I thought that it uh, it played beautifully. Yeah, it absolutely did. And, Maddie, you you um, talked about this a little bit just a moment ago, but let's talk about the friends to the rescue aspect of this battle. Things were really looking grim. We don't know what's going on. And I kind of had a feeling, and last week I, I talked about the fact that maybe the Klingons would show up one more time because having Laurel's uh, final scenes of the season be what happened the week before just didn't kind of sit well with me. Well, the Klingons showed up, and they showed up in a big way, and seeing that cleave ship come into play was was beautiful and made me harken back to the days of episode one of season one. What do you think about that? Um, I was uh, I was really, really thrilled with the Klingon showing up. I was a bit let down with the Kelpian showing up. You know, you got two brief, brief glimpses of what the Ba'ul ships looked like, and you really didn't get to see what they looked like. The only person you got to see was um, uh, was the sister, whose name escapes me. Serana. Uh, Serana, thank you. Um, mm-hmm. And it was, th- I think that was a bit of a letdown. I think if they were going to put, a, a, the fact that that was one of the red bursts and the fact that you, Burnham had to go back and specifically find them to help, you know, to get Kelpians to help them in this battle and to have such little screen time um, and to have such little special effects put into what they would specifically be using as fighters, um, I think was a bit of a letdown. However, seeing that cleave ship was absolutely <laughs> fantastic. Um, it, it was, uh, you know, uh, uh, the fact that you have a ship that can sort of just plow through um, multiple starships that explode and have no damage to the hull. I mean, they should really make the Enterprise out of that material. Um, <laughs> or, or maybe blast doors. Yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah. Maybe the blast doors are made of that material. We never know. <laughs> 
Um, but it was great. I also love the Laurel character. Um, it's it really is sort of uh, cool to see a woman at the head of a an entire militaristic combatant army. Um, and the way that that character is portrayed every time she's on, every time she's on screen, I'm just really, really happy. Um, and the fact that through that battle, she was a real Klingon. She wasn't, um, going around, you know, complaining about her child or, you know, making gooey eyes towards Ash and stuff like that. This battle, she was full Klingon. She wanted to, you know, if she was going to die in this battle, she would have been thrilled about it. And that, that was awesome to see as well. Absolutely. The Klingons were fantastic. I'll get back to them in just a second. But Bill, one of the questions that I have in regards to the Kelpians, which which Maddie was just talking about is, yeah, it was, oh, okay, they're coming in to help save the day. But in Ba'ul ships, um, they were their mortal enemy for for generations and generations. And now all of a sudden they're using their former or who knows if they're current enemy ships to help swoop in and help the Federation. I kind of would like to have a little more backstory about that. What did you think? Uh, that didn't bother me as much. Now that we know the balance has been upset intentionally, um, I guess partly by Burnham <laughs> since, mm-hmm. since she jumped there. Um, I guess it's the kind of thing I could see. We know the Kelpians are smart. We just now know that Saru wasn't the only brilliant Kelpian. This must be a trait they all have if they're all flying, you know, Baul ships to some extent. Um, of course, it would have been nice to see one Baul flying a Baul ship. That would have been fantastic. And I think it would have answered a lot of questions. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, that I mean, it's something that bothered me, but not enough to really to really harp on it too much. Uh, it was good to see Serana one more time. I really have liked her character the couple of times that we've seen her. But, Maddie, you also talked about this a little bit. Laurel and Ash was interesting seeing him on the bridge of a Klingon ship. He's supposed to be dead. His head was thrown into the river there on uh, on Kronos. And I have to wonder what's going to happen now with Laurel if we ever get the chance to see it because she lied to to the High Council and, and all of the other um, – uh, families uh, in the Klingon Empire before they were brought together that Ash was was dead. He's now uh, going to be staying in the Federation to fix Section 31, it appears. And do you guys think, and Maddie, I'll start with you, to think that this is going to be the pinnacle of what happens with the Federation and Klingons having more bad relationships when we get into the TOS times? Um, I think it'll definitely be interesting. Obviously, uh, we we know that Laurel is not the chancellor through um, future series and stuff like that. So you know you you have to ponder whether she is going to be um, you know a major character in the upcoming Section Thirty One uh, series. You have to ponder whether um, this is going to be sort of the end of her chancellorship because they found out that she lied. Um, and if they find out that, you know, why she lied specifically, you know, you have to sort of wonder what will happen. Um, but also, you know, power breeds prow- power, to quote Cersei Lannister. So, um, you know, do they sort of respect her for, um, you know, bringing back the people that will essentially help the future? Because she said it in, in the thing that the Klingons will always stand for their future. Um, because they are also sentient life form that theoretically would have been wiped out by control, which is sort of given as the reason of why they showed up. Um, I also think that, uh, I was, uh, on Tumblr the other day. I think, uh, I think she would have been, um, really disheartened to see sort of, uh, Cornwell die. Um, I think she really, uh, would, uh, find that, um, sort of, 
not hard to take, but sort of a, a formidable opponent that she had specifically been um, working against uh, to see that she died in a battle with, you know, uh, standing in arms together. I think she would have been affected by that. Um, in terms of, I don't know. I think it's I think it's hard to see what what they'll do with the character in terms of how she'll interact with Ash in the Section Thirty One series if she even appears in that. I really do. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. I haven't actually thought of whether or not she would be in the Section Thirty One series. It kind of makes sense, so I guess I guess we'll see. Um, you, you're doing really good, Maddie, because you're segueing into all of the things that I have. You, you're doing it in perfect order. Um, but um, Bill, do you have anything you want to add before we move on from the Klingons to uh, to the next topic? Yeah, this is one of the first giant plot holes that I had a problem with was the whole Ash and the Klingons aspect. Mm-hmm. Right now, there's an entire ship full of Klingons, presumably, that knows he's alive. And this is something that's just not addressed. He's on the bridge barking out orders to Klingons, and um, he's supposed to be dead because he was a traitor to the Empire. Um, I, that's the kind of thing that that needs resolution, and now we're not going to get it. Uh, I, I think it, it probably could have been better portrayed some other way. Ash didn't need to leave to engage Laurel. He could have just contacted her over subspace. You know, he, he could have sent some sort of message. But now there's just a huge plot hole that needs to be dealt with. And that we don't know if it's ever going to be dealt with. Yeah. And, and on that note, I'll very quickly say I found it interesting that Ash was able to leave and get a fleet of Klingon and uh, Kelpian ships to show up. But nobody was able to go and get any federation ships right, right. okay <laughs> well presumably because of section 31 i mean they turned off discovery's ability to um uh, to communicate long range presumably they're jamming everything else and they're reporting back to starfleet command that you know that, that these people are outlaws and oh oh i definitely agree but but who's to say that once ash goes and and flies to wherever he's going to fly to meet laurel that the klingons don't contact someone in starfleet and say here's the situation we need some help here to the coordinates i, I thought it was a little bit of a plot hole but oh no i can buy that no that's yeah. a good point why so, didn't sarek or uh amanda yeah. also sort of you know go back and say hey why don't you go help them for a bit they were headed to risa <laughs> <laughs> that would be illogical dan Yes, uh, well, that's true. So, Maddie, as I as I mentioned a moment ago, you you segued into this beautifully. I've been calling for several weeks for a huge singular sacrifice before this season ended, as to someone willingly giving up their life to help save others, uh, and it happened in this finale. I just didn't expect it to be Admiral Cornwell, and I didn't expect it to happen in the way that it happened. Uh, Maddie, let's start with you. What did you, what was your take on that entire scene with the death of Admiral Cornwell? Um, I think it was, I think reflecting back on it, originally I was sort of upset at the, uh, the, the briefness of it. Um, but then I realized if you really think about it, there were multiple characters that had visions of a torpedo, um, in the Enterprise's hull, and you would have expected that that would end in someone's death. So if you have over, uh, you know, two or three episodes, um, visions of a torpedo in someone's hull, then you expect someone to die. Um, I do think that it, um, her death was a, mm, I want to, a plot point and not necessarily a send off to the character. Um, I'm not entirely sure, uh, how I felt about it. It was, it was definitely one of those things that um, as like a fan of the character and a fan of the show, yes, I was sad to see her go, but I also understand 
um, what her character was originally intended for and how she sort of fit into the found family of Discovery. And I think it definitely, it was a fitting time for her to go. Um, but I'm not sure how I like personally felt about it as a fan. It was, it, it felt like it was rushed. Um, I definitely know that they put in a lot of work to sort of, you know, did she know about Pike's future? I loved the sort of uh, calling out Pike being like, if you're wrong, then how many people are you going to actually affect? If you, if you think you have a set future and you're wrong, who's going to end up dying? Um, so just let me do this. Um, the sacrifice that that took, um, I think that the, you know, sort of what I wanted to talk about in my, um, in my, uh, uh, sensor analysis was sort of the, the sacrifice in a found family. And I think that this was a huge, huge point to it. Um, and if she did know about Pike's future, we're not entirely sure how she would know. Um, then she also knew that it was her, it was going to be her future to do this. Hmm. That's an interesting way to look at it. I agree with you on a couple of the points that you made. I thought it was quick. I thought it was too quick for a character that we've grown to really uh, appreciate and love over two seasons. And I wanted it to be more, I don't know the, what the way to put it. I want it to be more worth it. I, and I don't mean that she didn't, she didn't help save probably the entire crew of the Enterprise, but the way that she just stood there with her hands behind her back kind of bothered me a little bit. And Bill, we've talked about this, and I think that you had a couple of points in regards to this scene and how it might have worked a little bit better. Uh, before I do that, I'm going to backtrack and say I think this is a, a completely empty death. Um, I, I grew to love the, the character of Kat Cornwell. I, I think that she was just what Discovery needed as far as an admiral that wasn't bad. Um, she made some questionable choices along the way, but she was, certainly was not a bad moral in the truest sense of the word. Now, getting on to how she could have died, let's forget about the fact that the entire ship should be made of those damn blast doors. <laughs> um, because apparently Pike didn't even flinch. Nothing. You know, there's an ex- explosion that takes out a quarter of the saucer section and Pike doesn't even move. There's no, there's no shockwave, uh, which is amazing because up on the bridge, he was being thrown around like a rag doll. Right. Um, However, I thought she was going to remain in the room because she was going to explosively decompress that compartment and then be sucked out, blown out into space with the torpedo and then met her end that way because that was the only way to save the ship. Mm -hmm. I thought that would have made much more sense. It's far more heroic. Other than that, she just stood there. Um, Why couldn't she have gotten behind the door with Pike? Why couldn't they have beamed her out of there? Um, because we've already de- demonstrated in discovery, uh, in season one that they could do site to site transport. Um, uh, you know, did they forget the enterprise as transporters? Um, so I, I think that it was just another gaping plot hole. I thought it was a totally empty death. I thought that Katrina Cornwell probably would have done more than just stood there and waited for the photon torpedo to go off. It just literally made no sense to me as much as I love Kat Cornwell and Jane Brooke. I did not enjoy the end for that character. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I think we're all in agreement with that. Um, other things happening in the episode, of course, that were not all action-oriented. Uh, the moments with Spock and Burnham. Uh, I thought they were wonderful moments between the two. Uh, Ethan really stole the show, I think, in the scenes between uh, Spock and Burnham. His performance as as Spock has been great. And the Vulcan I Love You was tender. And it was really perfect, I think. It's not something that we expected, but it, it worked really well. And, and Maddie, when we were talking, or excuse me, when we were watching, 
he started talking in Vulcan and you said, what, what? And I said, he said, I love you. I bet. And of course, Michael responded back with, I love you too. I thought those scenes were great. I'm going to get into the delay of action, so to speak, of getting things done when these scenes happen. I'll do that a little bit later, but what was your take on, on this final closure uh, between Spock and Burnham and the touching moments that they shared? Um, there's sort of two points I want to touch on that. One was the Vulcan I Love You, which I think has a little bit more connotation than you than you might expect. Because if you think about the Vulcan language and how language evolves, why would you need a word like love um, for a species that um, tries to suppress emotions? Um, and to have a specific phrase that... Uh, conjures up such a strong emotion um you know obviously in different languages there's different versions of love there's familial love there's romantic love and stuff like that so do we know if this um you know exact vulcan phrase translates to you know what we in english would consider love especially towards a family member we don't know but for even that phrase to exist in that language i think um is a huge impact and i think it would be rarely used um by vulcans um, the second thing I do want to talk about is I absolutely loved, I'm sure some people thought it was cheesy. I loved Burnham's speech um, about reaching out and finding yes. that person. Um, and we all know, and I, I'm pretty sure a couple people have said, of course it is, but we all know that it's in reference to Kirk in future times mm-hmm. for Spock. But it was yes. just so beautifully done, and I was really, really happy. And it really does show the impact of someone who... Um, and I think, uh, you know, humans can relate to any human that sort of emotionally closes themselves off. They will find that one person who they are, they are happy to reach out to, um, or at least do reach out to and, you know, build those relationships. Um, and to imply that it could have been Burnham and she was like, no, uh, it's not me, but it can be someone else. If you put in the effort, I think that's a great sort of impact to have, um, especially for a character like Spock. Yeah, very well said. Bill, what are your thoughts, man? Couldn't agree more. Those are some of the most beautiful moments of the episode. There were times where I thought they were oddly placed, but I understand that they were to break up the sort of action and the tension in the episode. But there were also scenes that were uh, that needed to happen in the finale. You know, if you did them the episode before, I don't think they would have carried nearly as much weight. So I think that they were perfectly placed in this finale. And it was just some some wonderful, wonderful acting by both Sonequa and Ethan. Um, I think they are the highlight episodes of, uh, sorry, highlight scenes of the entire episode for me, to be honest. One of the things that as I was thinking about what happened over the course of the season early this year on Discovering Trek, I think one of my long range scans was even though we don't know what's going to happen at the end, I kind of thought that Sonequa, that uh, Michael and Spock would completely um, throw away their disdain or, or the problem that they had with each other for so many years. And I, I was very happy to actually see that happen. But one of the things that we've actually been talking about with some folks and joking around about a little bit was over the course of the last three episodes, we're getting ready for this huge battle. Everything, it, literally everything is in the balance. All life in the galaxy hangs in the balance. And there seem to be many, many scenes on, um, on discovery of drawn out speeches a lot of Sonequa crying scenes, tears rolling down the face. And and I got to wonder, Bill, you brought up the point that maybe it was so that they could space out things a little bit with so much action going on. But it seemed when, when, th- when that was happening, as wonderful as that scene with Spock and Burnham was, my wife was like, oh, my God, 
go. You need to jump. You need to hurry up because this battle is raging on behind him. Do you think that it was a little bit too much of the um, pull on the heartstrings type of aspect in any of those scenes, Maddie? Um, I mean, uh, as someone who's in sort of theater and, and I, uh, have directed shows and stuff like that, um, the importance of sort of, um, changing how you view emotion. And if you're watching something, you know, you want to have sort of a, have this reaction, then have this reaction, then have this reaction. It, it makes for good television. It makes also good for good theater. Um, and I, uh, I enjoy that. I think I like having the sort of, you know, pull on my heartstrings and then there's a battle scene and then there's something else that sort of, you know, captures a different type of emotion. I think some of them, um, I think it depends on your own personal feelings towards Burnham and Spock's uh, relationship, specifically for this episode. Um, uh, similar scenes, you know, with Burnham and Ash. I think those scenes, for some people, uh, they're really heartfelt. Um, for me, I personally don't like that couple. So every time they're on scene, you know, they're in a scene together, um, I sort of cringe um, and I want it to be over. Um, that being said, um, I think I'm happy with how they sort of over the past couple episodes have, you know, switched to the dramatic. Um, I, I do love a good monologue, uh, as you can probably tell with how long I talk. Um, <laughs> See, it's, it's not just me. <laughs> no, it really is a familial trait. My mind is kind of blown. <laughs> um, a lot of Spock things happening in this episode. Uh, of course, he helps Michael figure out exactly what needs to be done and what the red burst means so that um, she's able to do those jumps back and actually fire off those red bursts. We finally get the moment that we have waited for since Spock was known to be in the season and we first saw him with that beard. We got to see him on the Enterprise in that familiar station wearing that uniform that we know and, and love so much. Um it really was great to see. We're going to get into that a little bit more. One thing I did have a question in regards to the, um, the, the, the jumping through time. First of all, I think Maddie, let's, let's start with you real quick. The cinematography for those jumps, I think you really appreciated and, and we're saying how much you, you liked what was going on. What did you think when we, that first one, especially talk about that first jump, uh, when, uh, when the, the camera kind of panned from one side of the singularity to the other side, I honestly could not have been happier with how they did that. The sort of like pane of glass switch over and stuff like that. And if you, if you really look into the physics of how a wormhole or even a black hole specifically works and how you, you to quantify it and how humans would understand that you have to think about space being two dimensional. Um, and to see that sort of um, that's really uh, sort of two dimensional, two dimensional switch um, of space was absolutely fantastic. I loved it. Um, I know a lot of people have been sort of referencing the movie 2001, which I've never seen. Um, uh, but also, um, the subsequent jumps looking back on it, um, every time it happened and you sort of had those ripple effects, um, uh, with the, the red, you know, lines and stuff like that, that the, how they connotate that with the physics behind how you would transport or go through a wormhole and stuff like that. I absolutely loved. Um, I think that's one of the, the really cool things about Star Trek is that if you understand the science behind it, um, they actually do a, a pretty good job. Um, obviously there's going to be some things that they throw in for television, but the, like the amount of detail that they put into the cinematography to make it look good, but to also quantify how a wormhole would actually work, um, in reality was absolutely amazing. I couldn't have been happier. 
So what I'm hearing from you, man, is if the veterinary school thing doesn't work out, you've got a career in temporal physics, my friend. Yes, exactly. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. I will invent time travel. Um, there you go. Off my student loans. Very, um, very nice. <laughs> solid plan. Yeah, yeah I like that. Uh, Bill, I'll, one other thing. Oh, go, go ahead, Maddie. Oh, the other thing that I want to talk about just very, very briefly with the with the wormhole is I think it is almost poetic how this almost lines up with um, Katie Bowman and the first picture of uh, Black Hole um, that actually just happened. It has been absolutely uh, astounding to see that sort of line up because um, in, you know, in a science fiction show, you get to see a wormhole and you get to see people traveling through it. And then in real life, you know, we've actually hit the point where we have a picture that the everyday person can see of a black hole, which is very, very similar to a wormhole. And I think it's um, astounding um, to, to sort of see that line up. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty coincidental, pretty awesome. And another example of things that happen in real life that Star Trek has also going on. Bill, one of the things that we talked about during the week was a question that I had in regard to all of these jumps. And maybe you can help me explain it a little bit or understand it a little bit better is it was my understanding that the time crystal was only going to allow for one jump. Yet we saw Michael jump five times to go back in time to hit the all to to start all the red bursts as well as the uh, the jump into the future with discovery. So we had some some discussion on that. What do you think was going on with there and how that was possible? Well, you know, they talked about how it would be a one-way jump for discovery. Um, and I think that's because the amount of energy required to get discovery to the future. You know, Burnham's mom was jumping all over the place and we presume she only had the one time crystal because they never told us she had more. As long as it's one person jumping in the suit, I imagine that time crystal could work, I don't know, in perpetuity or at least for a hell of a lot longer than one single jump. And I think that's evidenced by the fact that Michael made the previous five jumps uh, before she did number six and then number seven. So uh, I'm assuming that it had everything to do with the fact that discovery is so large and they had to create enough of a vortex to carry it forward 930 years. That 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 is my assumption. That's how I interpret it just based on what they've introduced on screen. Okay. I can I can go with that. The thing that bothered me a little bit about that and and you could tell when we were talking about it is is I would have liked for that your explanation is awesome. I would have liked to have seen a little bit of that explanation on the show. Because they kind of just said, oh, it's a one-way trip. The energy crystal is going to burn out um, after it's used that one time. So it, it kind of left me wondering how she could do all of those jumps. But I like your explanation. Uh, just, I think, a little bit of a plot hole uh, from the writer's standpoint as to how they could do it, um, as you explained. No, they definitely could have provided more context. Like I said, that's that's what I'm assuming based on what I saw. I could be wrong. I mean, mm -hmm. I freely admit that. But that's uh, the way it makes sense for me because you're right. Um, they said it was going to be a one jump thing. Um, and it's not like they can continually harness the power of a supernova to do that. So, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> Poe didn't jump with him. That's all I'm saying. Uh, uh, um, so, yeah, I, that's uh, that's the only way I can make it make sense in my own head. And it, it seems to work. Do we are we sure that Poe didn't go with him? Yes. OK, because I was kind of wondering if she did. No, she was in the shuttlecraft. Um, watching them go. So she did not go with them. Oh, that's right. Absolutely right. Thank you. Thank you for that clarification because I was wondering. So I guess I have one more question about what happened uh, in this episode. And it's the thing that really has made me have a problem with how this season wrapped up. And the big question is this, guys. And uh, Maddie, we'll start with you for your answer. Control is dead. We saw it get destroyed in the spore drive chamber. And all the control controlled ships 
stopped dead in the water as soon as um, he was, quote unquote, killed. So this was all happening while Discovery and Michael were were heading towards the, the wormhole. So if we know and they know because they actually confirmed, they actually said that Leland was dead. If they know control is done, why did Discovery have to go through into the future and strand everybody 950 years? I think the um, I think the resolution of that was actually sort of um, gone on and explained with uh, sort of the reason why uh, Spock and the other. Uh, crew members of the enterprise sort of talked about, um, why they could never bring up discovery. Um, you know, you see Spock say, uh, yes, discovery is gone, but the fact that it even happened in the first place means that it could potentially happen again. So we're not going to talk about it. Um, that being said, um, the sphere data still exists. If discovery wasn't, you know, didn't end up going to the future, who's to say that a control 2.0 didn't pop up in six months. Um, that being said, I think it, it's sort of a um, uh, uh, cheap way to sort of get past that. Um, I do think that it was I, the the way they portrayed control. They originally said it was you know sort of computer code taking over. It was the beginning of the sentience of AI. Um, but then all of a sudden, it had a living host, and if that living host died, um, the you know control was sort of uh, disabled. Um, were the the was the nanotechnology inside Leland sort of a brain to control? Um, but then it could you know move somewhere else. Uh, it, it was definitely a, a huge plot point that I think um, they didn't explain very well, um, which was very very upsetting because they sort of did sort of jump around with how control specifically functioned throughout the season. Um, and, uh, I wasn't sure, uh, I know that some people potentially said it was the beginning of the Borg. I wasn't sure if they were going to go in that route, having sort of a, you know, first queen type thing with Leland. Um, but it, I, it was just a, it was just a sort of a huge major plot point that I think they, they, you could get around with a sort of cheap gimmick. I got, I got to tell you, uh, I, first of all, I don't think that it has any relation to the Borg whatsoever. And as as disappointed and uh, as upset as I was at first in regards to this finale, if that had been the case, I cannot tell you how pissed off I would have been if the if this control thing were the origins of the Borg, which would then involve some kind of time travel and distance travel to the to the Delta Quadrant, this that and the other thing. I'm so glad that they kind of put that to bed at least as far as I'm concerned, because I think that would have been a huge, huge mistake. So Bill, what about you? Um, you, Do do you agree with what Maddie was saying in regards to the whole having to go into the future? Because uh, I like the way you put it, Maddie control 2.0 could show up at any point. Only partially, you know, in the days since the finale, Alex Kurtzman has been interviewed by a couple of outlets, most notably the Hollywood reporter, I think. And um, he said, he's confirmed that control is neutralized. You know, he's confirmed that Leland is dead, that it's not a threat. So uh, I think Maddie's right. I think that they could have provided a little more context, but without that context, it tells me that the jump was totally unnecessary. Um, if, if control is in fact neutralized, they could very easily have aborted and they could have created a different plot point to send discovery into the future. Perhaps they try to abort and they can't, and now they're stuck and now they're jumping and now they have no idea where they're going because there's a flaw in the process. And then they wind up, somewhere other than 930 years in the future. I think that could have been a far more compelling plot point because we don't know where they've gone and they don't know where they're going to wind up. And I think that probably would have been far more compelling than, Oh, we got to jump. 
oh wait, yeah. Control's dead. We got to jump. So right. uh, that that was what I had. To me, that is the largest plot hole in this episode, um, and they didn't even try to address it, which is really yeah. what bothers me. What bothers me so much about it is, um, it to me, what they did by sending the ship 950 years in the future and then saying that they can never speak of Discovery or the crew again, which I'm going to get into in a second, was just a way to, to placate to the people that have been bitching about the fact that nobody's ever heard about Discovery in any of the Trek that we've seen before. So we need to figure out a way to wipe it out. So that this is why we've never heard about it. I think that's a horrendous decision to make. I really don't like that at all. I know that, you know, I know that Kurtzman has wanted to get away from this because Brian Fuller kind of put him in a box. Fuller wanted to set it 10 years before TOS. Fuller had the fascination with that time period, as I think Aaron Harberts has said before. Um, and I understand that they wanted to sort of pave their own road. But they've already started walking down a road. And now they just decided they didn't like the road they were on. So they were going to create a new one. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the thing that really gets to me about this, and I'm going to bring it up later on, I think in the humanity piece, but I'll I'll talk about it now, is Discovery was involved in a lot of things prior to this happening. They were involved in the Klingon War. The USS Glenn was around at one point before it had to get destroyed because of the spore drive. So for them to say that we're never, we're going to act as if the discovery, um, the spore drive, the crew never existed because we're never going to speak about them. They're not going to be in any type of Starfleet um, historical archive really bothers me because so many things happened before this particular battle. So to completely wipe out this almost as if they never existed, I have a huge issue, which it makes me think that everything that we've seen over the last two years was for nothing. That really is something that has stuck with me in my craw, so to speak, and I've had a huge problem with. I obviously don't feel that way. I mean, the only way to keep some semblance of control, if there is a Control 2.0, from wanting to find the Discovery is to make Control believe that Discovery doesn't exist anymore. Um, uh, and that, you know, by classifying that data, um, it never existed. I understand why they do that simply because, you know, let's say there's some semblance out there. You know, if there's just one nanobot, uh, that's one too many. And uh, they have to create a, a situation where that control has no idea that sphere data even exists. So I get it on that level. Um, I don't necessarily like the way it was introduced, but I understand why. Okay, I can I can go with that. So lots happening in this episode. Of course, we're left with a with with a with a cliffhanger, I guess we could say, as to what's going to happen for the beginning of season three. Before we move along to the red shirt roll call, guys, I just wanted to get some quick bullet points, if you have any, on things that you really liked about the episode. One of the things that I loved and was probably my favorite visual of this episode was the callback to Star Trek the Motion Picture when the Discovery was heading into the wormhole and that stretched out look of 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 everything that was going on on screen. I thought that was absolutely brilliant and a purposeful callback to TMP as we celebrate the 40th anniversary of that movie this year. Um, I do like how the Temporal Prime Directive has been established as a result of everything that we saw going on in this episode. Um, And it does answer the question of why Spock has never spoken about Michael ever in Star Trek history, but makes me wonder why something similar didn't happen with Cybok. Just saying. Yeah, 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 I'm right there with you. I hate the idea of a temporal prime directive um, because <laughs> it says so that does Jan- Janeway loves it. Well, it says that no other show from here on in is going to adhere to that temporal prime directive. Exactly. Um, I, I think that that's you know just uh, I get that 
somebody has, has watched Voyager and has heard the term, but <laughs> didn't, it sounds like they didn't take into account all of the other shows, which gives me a problem. So um, I did like the uh, the wormhole effect. I saw that I was smiling from ear to ear because you're right. It's a classic callback to TMP. Um, I don't think we needed to answer the question why Michael doesn't talk about. Uh, sorry, why Spock doesn't talk about Michael because he didn't tell his best friends that his father was the Vulcan ambassador until he was on board. True. Spock has a, a pattern of not introducing things until they are actually relevant. And uh, I, I just I don't think we needed to plug that hole in the boat, honestly. Okay. Matt, you got anything special to call out? Um, I think I'm, uh, one thing I'm actually excited for, and I think they set it up sort of brilliantly, um, is their, the ability for next season to be solely about, um, uh, specifically the crew of discovery. Um, I know that in season one, they, uh, they had a lot of, um, sort of, uh, major characters, but they didn't really talk about the bridge crew. And then in season two, I think they, in my personal opinion, I spent, I think they spent a little bit too much time focusing on, uh, characters from other series. I think they spent a little bit too much time on, on Pike and Spock, but I know that the importance of why that existed, uh, with Burnham being Sarek's other child. Um, uh, but I think the next season is going to be solely about, um, what the discovery, uh, gets up to, um, wherever they end up. Um, and I'm really, really, really excited to see that because I feel like this season, in my opinion, was a little bit lacking in terms of, uh, the character development I was hoping for, for the discovery characters. I think we saw an immense amount of character development for Spock and Pike, which I was very happy to see, but, um, this is discovery and I sort of wanted a little bit more. I think they, they had a little bit with Arium. Um, I know that it was sort of heart wrenching to sort of get, you know, to start really loving that character in about an episode and a half and then have her sort of, you know, um, shot out into space from us. Um, but I'm really, really excited with how they sort of have set up a, a, a full season of just another, um, discovery crew based, um, season, which I'm very happy. I will be very happy to see. Well, gentlemen, we have reached that moment of discovering Shrek where we take a moment to pause and reflect on those we have lost in this week's episode of Star Trek Discovery. It's the somber part of our show, but we feel it's the least we can do for those that have paid the ultimate price. We like to call it the Red Shirt Roll Call. He's dead, Jim. He's dead, Jim. He's dead, Jim. He's dead, Jim. So, Bill, last week with part one, we were kind of uh, um, left with with nothing to report here um, because we knew that this week that was going to change and change. It did, my friend. What do you got for us? Well, you know, Dan, there's just we cleared a whole bunch of room on the redshirt roll call for this week on purpose because we knew we we're going to need expansion space. You know, we added a couple of terabyte drives and uh, I think we're, we're, we filled them up pretty well. Um we have no idea how many nameless crew members of both the Enterprise and Discovery were just wiped out in those pods and shuttles. Uh, it seems like there was a lot of them, um, but it's so hard to tell because um, there was so much stuff flying around. So we're going to estimate that we need an entire drive just for them. Now, beyond that, we say goodbye to the Leland Bot 3000, Dan. It died screaming <laughs> in pain, much like Philippa Giorgio hoped, much like we all hoped. Um, in the reaction cube in the discovery, uh, engineering lab. And man, it was glorious. I, I couldn't be happier to say goodbye to that Leland bot 3000. It's almost <laughs> like when the T 1000 died, it was, it was fantastic. And then lastly, Dan, 
we bid a somber and fond farewell to Admiral Katrina Cornwell of Starfleet Command. Admiral on the bridge. It's a, it's a sad moment. It's a character we grew to love, and it hurts to say goodbye to this one in this week's Red Shirt Roll Call, Dan. Yeah, we're, we're happy to see one go, but we're very sad to see another. So we're going to raise a glass of Synthahol for all that we have lost, not only for this episode, but for the entire season of Star Trek Discovery as we say goodbye in this week's Red Shirt Roll Call. This week's episode is brought to you by Fansets, the exclusive sponsor for Discovering Trek. You know, we always love to talk about their amazing line of pin products and collectibles because they truly are the best in the industry. You know, when you're placing an order on fansets.com as I have this week, allegedly, <laughs> maybe, because I have a problem, you can be sure that you're getting the best products, the best prices, and hands down, outstanding customer service all around. So as we wrap up this season of Star Trek Discovery, we want to take a moment to thank our friends at Fansets for being our exclusive sponsor here on this podcast. We could not be happier to be working with this amazing group of people. Lou, John, and the entire staff over there are not only great partners of the show, but they've also become great friends of ours, and we are truly so happy for their amazing success and wish them all the best going forward. We are also excited and very proud to announce that for Season 3 of Discovering Trek, Fansets will be back as our exclusive sponsor on the podcast. And Dan, I can't tell you how much I look forward to continuing this wonderful relationship. Oh, absolutely, man. I'm in total agreement. We love everybody over at Fansets. Obviously, we love their product, and we're so happy that they'll be back for uh, uh, for season three. Um, but hey, it's still this season, and that means there's still a special discount code available uh, to buy some awesome pins and accessories over at Fansets.com. So do yourself a favor. Head on over to their site, put a bunch of pins, put a bunch of accessories into your shopping cart, and at checkout, be sure to enter this week's exclusive checkout code, SACRIFICE. That's in all capital letters. I would try to spell it out for you, but I am not good at that. So <laughs> SACRIFICE is the word. Use that code and you will get 15% off your entire order at fansets.com, and this code will be available to use until Sunday, April 28th. 2019 at 11:59 Eastern Daylight Time. Also, keep your eyes open for the two new Star Trek pins coming out in May. First up on May 1st will be Space Station K7, which is very awesome. And then on May 15th, we're going to head back over to Deep Space Nine, where you can add Dr. Julian Bashir to your collection, just like I'm going to do. Fansets, we are Star Trek, and as always, we thank our friends at Fansets for being the exclusive sponsor of Discovering Trek. S-A-C-R-I-F-I-C-E. That's why you're going to be a vet. Are you I'm sitting here doing a podcast? Are you sure he's family? Because he can spell, Dan. <laughs> he's, hey, he got all the brains. I got all the looks. Uh, wow. Um, <laughs> a lot to look at. That's, wow. Thank, thank you. I, thank you. Uh, Where's yeah. the spot going? <laughs> yeah. Of all the souls I have encountered, in my travels. His was the most human. You know, Star Trek has always been a reflection of our times. And in this segment, we're going to take a look at what this episode helped us to discover about our own humanity, or perhaps what it tells us about ourselves. And Maddie, we've had some discussion over the week uh, as to this episode and what it meant to us. So let's start with you and your thoughts with sensor analysis. Um, 
I think this was the section that I think I was struggling a little bit most with with my homework. I really wanted to find something that, you know, hit me, hit a lot of the viewers, um, but also that they really, I think they touched on well in the show. And I think the thing that I really want to bring up, um, uh, this being sort of the season finale and a two-part episode, I think they really touched on so well the found family aspect um, that a lot of people in humanity uh, sort of deal with um, as... Uh, as a member of the queer community, as a current expat who lives in London, um, that the idea of a found family, the people who you um, really, you know, put your effort into that uh, aren't related, I think was done beautifully throughout the season, but specifically this episode and last episode, um, the sacrifices that you make for those people, the love that you have for those people um, really can sort of rival um, your um, biological family. Um, and that's not to take anything away from any other type of family that you might have and stuff like that. But the found family aspect um, is is really, really touching uh, to see um, because this crew really, really do uh, love each other and they sacrifice for each other and they are devoted to each other. Um, and it was really great to see um, the sort of commitment that you can make to people um, that are present in your lives. Hope. It's a word that that has so much meaning, especially after this finale. This is the hardest sensor analysis I've ever had to do in two seasons of Discovering Trek. It's been days since I watched this episode, and I'm still trying to process it. I really and honestly don't know how to feel. Should I be happy that Control was defeated? Should I be elated that Michael and the Discovery were able to escape to the future? Should I be smiling because Spock and Michael had such a moment of bonding together before she left? Should I be giddy that we saw Spock in full uniform without his beard standing at that station we know and love so much on the Enterprise? Or should I be angry? Should I be pissed off that Cornwell, while being the one big sacrifice that I've been talking about for weeks, should have had a grander death, if that makes any sense? Should I be mad at the fact that this crew that I've grown to love more than I realized to be forced to not even be a footnote in Starfleet history because they needed to be erased in order to prevent anything similar from happening again? And should I be furious that it ended in a way that gives no indication whatsoever as to what's in store for this crew as they're jumped forward 930 years into the future with no apparent way of returning? But I guess I'll just have to hope. Hope springs eternal, is what I think they say. You know, another pretty popular science fiction franchise franchise once had a tagline that said, rebellions are built on hope. For me, hope means so much more. I hope that this isn't the end of what we know for Discovery and the crew. I hope next season brings us more needed answers uh, that any that have come up with over the last two years for this, for this show. I hope this feeling of emptiness that I have right now goes away. And to quote Red and the final line of one of my favorite movies, The Shawshank Redemption, I hope. Commendation, palm leaf of Axanar Peace Mission, Grand Kite Order of Tactics, Class of Excellence, Frenteris Ribbon of Commendation. All right, enough of that.
Let's get to some good stuff, fun, smiling times now that we're done with the humanity section. It's time for Starfleet Commendations, and uh, we want to see who you picked this week to receive your your thumbs up for performances or, or, or whatnot. So, Maddie, let's start with you, as we like to do with our special guest every week. Uh, what do you have for Starfleet Commendations, buddy? Um, I have one, but it's probably the one that I, um, I really hope – I really hope she hears this. I don't know if she ever will, but Michelle Yeoh as George O has transformed a character that was written as a it was written as a sort of uh mock at starfleet i think um i think any sort of terran is written written as a sort of mock at starfleet but she has transformed that character into a true anti-hero and i know that a lot of people like to look at an anti-hero trope and they go this is a character that's sort of morally gray and you know you sort of uh, you you sort of expect them to do the unexpected, um, but they still always come out on top um, with the sort of, you know, being a, a good person. And I personally hate that trope for an antihero. I think it's dumb. Um, and Giorgio is the true antihero. She is not a morally gray character. You know her morals are self-serving. You know her morals are only benefiting the people that she loves. Um but she still is helping the cause. Um, I think you see this uh, very apparently in the giggle um, as she kills Leland. I was so happy to see that because you really see that she is uh, sadistic. You see that she is only out for her revenge, but because of that, um, the cause was helped. And I love that sort of, I love that. I, I could not have been happier with a true anti-hero to see, to see that um, they didn't sort of want to make her, you know, morally gray. They wanted to keep her sort of uh, uh, a villain, but just helping the cause currently because she could easily, easily turn around and be the villain of the next season or the villain of the section 31. And I think that's, I think that is brilliant character development. I think it's brilliant. Isn't it amazing that she died in the, in the, the first, the premiere two parter, but yet we have seen so much Michelle Yeoh since that happened. And I think it's, it's it's awesome how they've done it. Uh, For me, I have three, uh, Starfleet combinations this week, Ethan Peck and Sonequa Martin-Green. You know, in an episode that was filled with so much action, the final scenes between Spock and Michael were just so well done, as we talked about earlier. Time is of the essence, and you would think that there'd be no time for this kind of delay to talk about the things they talked about, but it actually worked for this one, and it worked on so many levels. Sonequa was fantastic as usual, but Ethan really stole those scenes with his performances as Spock. Also want to give a commendation to Anson Mount again. How many have I given out this week to Anson Mount, Bill? Like a, like 10? I, I think you might be <laughs> might be 14 for 14 at this point. First of all, on an unrelated topic to the episode, the publicity photo that he posted out on Twitter with him on the Bridge of Discovery holding his dog, who has since passed away, is one of the best publicity photos of the entire season. I think it was just awesome. Everybody needs to go to his uh, Twitter page and check it out. But all season, this man has been uh, getting Starfleet commendations. I love 
him playing Captain Pike. For the finale, we get to see this captain really command his ship and the fleet of ships under his command. His authoritative tone and actions were wonderful to behold, but then we got those tender moments between he and Cornwell, and they actually mixed them together beautifully. He was willing to be the one to sacrifice himself, but Cornwell showed him how important he really is to Starfleet, and even knowing what his future holds – he turned away from her and walked towards the turbo lift when he accepted that. And I thought it was wonderfully acted by Anson. And finally, this week's com- last commendation for me for the season, as what Bill did last week, I have to give thanks to the entire cast and crew of Discovery. To each and every one of you, thank you from the bottom of my heart for this season. It was amazing to behold. I've never been so invested in a season of television, and it's because you all have created and given us these stories that impact the very fiber of my being. And maybe that's why this finale scares me as much as it does. I think I'm afraid for what happens next because right now, everything these characters have been through seems a little empty to me. I've always said that I have complete faith in the writers of the show. So as I said earlier, I have to hope that this is the case here too. Bill. Well, Dan, I kind of broke the rules this week, and I'm going to ask for forgiveness in advance. So, um, I've got six, and I know I, <laughs> that's okay. I um I know that we're supposed to do like three, but I decided to double up because this is the season finale, and I'm going to start with a, a accommodation for evasive pattern Delta Five. This is a callback to Star Trek 2009, the J.J. Abrams film, when Captain Robal calls out evasive pattern delta five and saru uses the same evasive pattern in such sweet sorrow part two made me smile a little bit i'm not gonna lie so good to see you again delta five uh in all seriousness though i do have to hand out combinations to sonequa martin green um you know she has been the prototypical series lead and i can't think of star trek discovery uh, having a better person at the top of the call sheet uh this season has been a tour de force for her um, it's been emotional. It's been dramatic. It's provided some levity where needed. And Sonequa has just displayed range after range after range of emotion. And it's been a delight to watch. Next up, Jane Brooke. I have to tip my cap to the Admiral. I will miss Cat Cornwell. Um, and I will miss Jane Brooke on Star Trek Discovery. But of course, this is science fiction. You never know. But um, it's it, it was a joy to watch Jane's performances over the last two seasons. Uh, next up, I have to give a commendation, a joint commendation to both Michelle Yeoh and Rachel Ancherill. And I hope I'm saying Rachel's last name right. I apologize if I'm not. The duo of Giorgio and Nan is the buddy cop show I didn't know I needed. Um, their pursuit of control in the finale was just fantastic. And the two of them worked so well together, both as characters and as actors. Uh, next up, uh, Ethan Peck. You know, I have to say the legacy of Leonard Nimoy is in strong, capable hands with Ethan Peck. His performance of Spock this season has been outstanding. And if nothing, the last 10 minutes demonstrates why he was the perfect choice to play this character, not just this season, but hopefully in the future someday we get to see him. And then lastly, I have to say the visual effects team. I mentioned at the top of the episode, Star Trek has never looked so good. We have film quality on television, and it is breathtaking and amazing. And we've talked about how good Discovery looks the last two seasons of Discovering Trek, but it is the result of the work of all of these individuals who put in a lot of time, a lot of effort 
to make it look the way it does to back up the story because without the story you have nothing but their visual effects complement everything that happens on screen exquisitely so dan those are my six starfleet commendations for the season finale um i could have kept going as i know you could have um but uh it's just it, it's a joy to end it this this way six huh six let's see i'll if, allow it uh, let's see if you can do more next time <laughs> long range scan of planet complete well what's next for discovery guys um we have a whole off season to think about it and come up with some plot ideas for season three um i literally have no freaking idea what's gonna happen uh i'm still reeling about this finale Knowing that Starfleet has set up the Temporal Prime Directive and the fact that no one will mention the Discovery or anyone from the crew again makes it feel that what happened is so final. But I will give this prediction. They're going to be trying to find a way home, and one person is going to make it back to the correct time. Somehow, some way, because she only really seems to care about herself, now that Leland is gone... She wants to run the show at Section 31. So in preparation for the new series that will take place after Season 3, Philippa Giorgio is somehow going to make it back to the regular time that Discovery takes place in to work with Ash Tyler in our favorite Black Badge Covert Ops team. You heard it here first. Philippa Giorgio will return, and she will be on Section 31, a la current time frame of Discovery, which is no more because it jumped to 930. I don't even want to get into it. I'm done. <laughs> Bill, Bill, what do you got for a long-range scan, man? Well, mine is similar, but I think that Georgia was going to be the main protagonist or antagonist, sorry, next season. I think that the crew is going to spend as much time battling her and her desire to get back as they are just their own survival. Um, and, and I have a feeling that, uh, that that's how it's going to end up. I have a feeling that uh, we're not done seeing the last of evil Giorgio in any way. And I think if she has to sabotage the discovery to get back, I think she will. Okay. That's two long range scans with Giorgio. Maddie, you're going to give us the cycle here. Uh, I also, I had uh, three sort of long range scans and also an explanation, but one of them was that Giorgio would be coming back. And I specifically wrote down that she would be coming back separately from the rest of the Discovery crew. Um, I don't know when that will happen. Could be in episode one. Could be the season finale of season three. Who knows? Um, my second one, and I think this... Uh, I, I did go back, and I think I watched this maybe two or three times. I think that Zora from Calypso um, will somehow be important um, in the next season. Um, I... I, I, there's no way there's, I can't believe that they would write such a plot point like that, um, into a short trek and not explain realistically any of it in the entirety of season two. Um, why, why has discovery been parked there for a thousand years is the thousand years, um, almost a thousand years, excuse me, um, where they ended up, um, has discovery been parked there since the current, you know, time frame of discovery, or is it a thousand years from their 930 year jump? We don't know. Um, but I do believe that Zora is somehow an amalgamation of the ship's computer and the sphere data. I think that's the sort of explanation about how that sort of came about. And I do think they will address it. I don't think they would write an entire short trek to never address that again. 
Um, and my uh, third long-range scan was sort of a contradictory uh, contradiction to your long-range scan from last week, Uncle Dan. Um, and I believe that you said that you think Poe would become the chief engineer that we've sort of been waiting for. Um, I know that now, obviously, we know she probably won't as she didn't follow them into the future. But I even last even last episode, I think the next the first chief engineer would be Jet Reno. I really do think that they would put that character um, into sort of a chief engineer. I think she plays well um, in sort of a give and take with uh, Stamets. Um, I I like the duo. I like how she has more of a physical background and he has a more biological background. I think that would be an interesting play there. Um, My future sort of hope um, is that they address sort of the... uh, the plot hole of what the signals are and how Burnham sent a seventh signal. We've seen that she specifically sends these red flares from her suit. So what is the seventh signal? That's what I want to know. Did she send her suit back? You can't just send sort of a red flare through a wormhole. How did it get there four months after the, you know, sort of the battle? Um, I want to know what that red flare was, and I want to know why it wasn't sort of either her coming back or Discovery coming back as a whole. Your face is a red flare. Oh, sorry. We're not on Trek Geeks. I'm sorry. <laughs> can't say that. <laughs> well, it, I, oh. I, I just want to follow up with, you know, we, we've been very critical of this episode, but that by no means, you know, is to state that we hate Star Trek Discovery. Right. You know, yes. or that we think it's, it's jumped the shark or anything. Uh, I think that We've also talked about things that we have truly enjoyed about this episode and this season, um, but uh, it's it's hard to overlook some of these things. So for for people who may be listening to this for the first time or or perhaps continue to listen through the season and think that now we just hate Discovery, that could not be further from the truth. I still love Star Trek Discovery, and I look forward to season three. So I just we didn't state that up front, and I I think we probably should have because in hindsight there were a lot of things we didn't like about this episode. I absolutely agree, Bill. Um, my love for discovery uh, has not has not waned. I'm just a little scared about what the future of discovery holds based on what this finale was. I still can't wait to stand in line at STLV to thank every one of the discovery cast that is there for what they've done. I love this crew. Like I think like no other crew and it's only taken two seasons for me to appreciate it as much as I do. So thank you for bringing that up. Uh, Yeah, we still love discovery, but here, this is proof that we can talk about things about star Trek that we don't like. Because there are things that we don't like about what has happened, but we can still love the franchise itself. So, Bill, uh, buddy, uh, season two is done. We got we got probably like a year before season three. I cannot wait a year. But I will say, with all the things that we have may not have liked about the season and my trepidation for what season three is going to bring, I can guarantee you when that first trailer hits – I am going to be so happy. I'm going to be giddy and dancing in front of you, just like Michael Jackson, because I know that's what you want to see. So what do we got coming up for next episode? I'm a little alarmed that you think that's what I want to see. (laughs) (laughs) I might need eye bleach after that. I'm not entirely certain. (laughs) And, and Maddie, I hope that you've never had to see that in your entire lifetime because it's not pretty. Uh, (laughs) Dan, now that season two is wrapped, 
we're going to be kind of sliding into an off-season mode ourselves, but fret not, dear friends. We plan on having an episode of Discovering Trek at least once a month until Season 3 kicks off. And next time, we'll be having our Season 2 wrap-up discussion, uh, which I'm very much looking forward to. It'll be the whole season of Star Trek Discovery Season 2, dissected as only Dan and I can do. Until then, of course, remember, you can subscribe to Discovering Trek by searching for us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or you can head right on over to DiscoveringTrek.com. Plus, now you can support Discovering Trek and the Trek Geeks Network of Podcasts by subscribing to exclusive bonus content via Patreon. Get access to content you're not going to get anywhere else. Plus, there's going to be lots of other exclusive content. You can see the first of our annual supporters pins from Fansets and check out our exclusive Podfleet t-shirt design, Dan, along with so many other perks. In fact, all the perks all the time. I like that. I like that tagline. We're going to use that Thank on Twitter you. now. Thank man. you. Uh, and speaking of Patreon, buddy, we want to take a moment to recognize the following amazing producers of Discovering Trek. We are so thankful for their support. And they include Ken Tripp, Casey Shafsky, Charlie Mulvey, Chris Trebuzio, Craig Ewing, Eric Extreme, Jackie and Chris Hackney, Lionel Marchand, Matt McGonigal, Mike Bovia, Harry Michelson, Norman Lau, Patrick Escudero, Sean O'Halloran, and the lovely and talented Scott Vashon. Now, if you would like to become a producer of Discovering Trek or even get access to the raw audio for these Discovering Trek episodes, head on over to patreon.com slash trekgeeks, where subscription levels start for as little as $1 per month. Maddie, you know, uh, I remember asking you if you wanted to come on the show and, and, and talk a little Star Trek Discovery, and you were very excited. And I got to say, it has been so awesome to have you here on the show. It is, it is certainly very, very easy to tell that you got the brains in the family, my friend, uh, because your analysis was fantastic and cannot thank you enough for being on here with us today. Well, thank you so much. Um, I definitely, you know, I like to be critical. Um, I like to be, uh, entertaining. Um, and you present me with options to do both of those things by insulting you. So it's great. <laughs> Maddie, I, I want to ask you a question before we go. And is that, do you believe that Alex Trebek was in Star Trek? Insurrection? Oh yes, absolutely. He was a hundred percent in Star Trek. Insurrection. Uh, we're deleting your entire audio track. <laughs> As he laughs. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Okay. Thanks. Thanks buddy. And, um, I'm going to do another, uh, special thank you here. Uh, folks, as we wrap up um, Discovering Trek Season 2, so to speak. And that goes to my podcast partner, Bill. Buddy, you came to me over four years ago uh, with the idea of starting a podcast, which I really had no interest in doing at first. Uh, And we finally decided to start Trek Geeks, and we've had a great time. And then when Discovery came along, uh, we decided to do our second podcast um, and I, uh, you wanted me to be the, the, the showrunner of it and the executive producer. And I was a little hesitant cause I was a little scared and here we are wrapping up season two. It has been an amazing ride. I cannot do this without you, my friend, you are my rock on the show. You keep things, uh, um, fun and entertaining. I thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining me for another season. Uh, I'm not going to fire you for season three, as I have said I would uh, a couple of times during the season. Yeah. So uh, thank you so much, man, for everything you do here on Discovering Trek. I look forward to the uh, adventure continuing. Uh, As do I, buddy. I I can't think of any other way to do it. And uh, I'm just glad that so many people um, download to listen because it, uh, it makes the journey all the more worthwhile. Absolutely. And well, folks, that's going to do it for us in our discussion on Such Sweet Sorrow Part 2 and for our discussion on Season 2 as a whole. 
But don't worry, we'll be back for that entire season to wrap up soon. Uh, it's been a joy and a privilege to sit down with you every week to talk about each episode. Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter to let us know what you thought about the season finale and about Discovering Trek as well. As always, we thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules to listen to us talk about this amazing new chapter in the Star Trek universe each and every week. We wouldn't be here without your support, and we cannot thank you enough for it. We'll be back from time to time during the offseason, and we look forward to what Season 3 will bring us next year. Until then, here are some words of wisdom from Captain Jonathan Archer from Star Trek Enterprise. We're going to stumble and make mistakes. I'm sure more than a few before we find our footing. But we're going to learn from those mistakes. That's what being human is all about. And until next season... Never stop discovering. Music for Discovering Trek is provided by Five Year Mission. They're writing one song for each episode of the original Star Trek. Download their music at fiveyearmission.net. Discovering Trek, a Star Trek Discovery Companion, is a production of Trek Geeks. Executive producer Dan Davidson. For even more Star Trek discussion, check out the Trek Geeks podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and trekgeeks.com. <laughs>